When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations, like getting complaints because someone on the team always smells horrible. You better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Bambi's U.S.-based personnel are dedicated to your business, giving you access to the HR expertise and personal touch you need. HR managers can easily cost $80,000 per year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Visit Bambi.com slash C-Suite right now. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash C-Suite. Bambi.com slash C-Suite. Megan Gibson. The well-being of one person in a family affects the whole family system. This is a supportive community to share research, resources, stories, tips, and life hacks to keep the family brain healthy. Hi, and thanks for listening to this episode of The Family Brain. I'm your host, Megan Gibson, and today I'll be talking with Jen Lumenlin, who is the host of another podcast called Your Parenting Mojo where she talks about research around different topics related to parenting. So we talk about some of the things going on right now with COVID-19 and managing kids' homeschooling and crisis schooling and remote learning, whatever you want to call it. But I think that a lot of parents right now, myself included, are questioning their parenting mojo. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Jen, and I think she sheds a lot of light on things that we can all work on and things that we can kind of just relax about. So thanks for listening. And I want to say thank you to Otherworld Computing for sponsoring this episode. Otherworld Computing has everything you need for your Mac. And I appreciate the support. Thanks so much. So I am so excited to learn more about your podcast and just about you and the work you do. So your podcast is Your Parenting Mojo, and I was listening to it this morning, actually, on my walk and learning so much. You have lots of research, which I love because I think I sometimes get caught in the the feelings and the vibes, and, and <laughs> which, which is fine too, but I like hearing more about the research. But I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about you and how you got started in doing this work. Yeah, I I really started it when my daughter was a baby and I started getting emails from a parenting website that shall remain nameless saying things like, is your child at risk for developmental delays? And, you know, those clickbait (laughs) headlines that usually just summarize the results of one study and and say, well, this study indicates that your child is at risk if if these things happen. And I thought, well, how does that fit with the body of research evidence? You know, is this this an outlier? Is it a new direction for research? How do we even evaluate that? And and I looked around and found there was really no uh, resource for parents that helps them to understand this. And so I created one myself and went back to school and got a master's in psychology, focused on child development, and then followed that with another one in education and uh, really created Your Parenting Mojo to be that place where parents can go and understand, okay, is this really a thing, first of all, that we should pay attention to? And if it is, what does the body of evidence say about it? And therefore, what should we do about it? 
Yes. Well, and it's interesting because I hadn't thought about those early emails. I'm probably thinking of the same email place that I got <laughs> it's things definitely from. Possible. <laughs> and it's what I, I mean, it's really what you depend on for your information, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so you're getting them and you're, you're kind of trying to make sure you're doing a good job. And it's funny because I've said this to a few people just today, lately parenting feels like very much like those early days where I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. Mm. And it brings back a lot of memories of that looking for information, looking for research, but not knowing what can I rely on and what mm. is good research and what isn't. And um, I just think with, with the pandemic that we're dealing with, it's put all of our parenting just kind of on shifty ground. I don't know if mm -hmm. you felt that way at all. Yeah, I've definitely seen it. I actually ran a workshop right after COVID started um, called The Kids Are Off School, Now What? Mm -hmm. <laughs> For parents who were kind of staring down this, okay, how am I going to navigate work and having the kids around all day and some form of homeschooling slash crisis schooling um, to, to help them think through, okay, well, what does this mean? Just, just because my child is in school for six or seven hours a day doesn't mean I actually have to teach them for six or seven hours a day. Um, children are actually learning for maybe about an hour a day. <laughs> and so if you do some focus time with them, you can actually cover about the same amount as they would cover in school really fast um, when you're at home. And then, okay, well, that leaves a whole bunch of time free for them how do we keep them busy for that time without them being on screens all day um, how, how do we learn how to match an activity to their um, what's called their schema which is the way they're thinking about the world right now if you propose an activity that's matched to that then they're gung-ho on it and <laughs> they'll leave you alone for two hours to get work done while while they're busy doing something that's super super interesting to them so walking parents through those kinds of things and, and helping them to to make those connections to to make parents parenting seem more doable right now in this moment. Yeah. I was just talking to a friend who has a couple of kids who really rely a lot on schedules. Otherwise mm -hmm. they just go off the rails. And I'm noticing with my family, one of my kids is like that. And probably I'm kind of like that too, but we haven't, because it's not as extreme, it, it hasn't been a forced thing. Mm -hmm. And I was telling her how I feel like even when I'm relaxing, it's kind of hanging over my head, like I should be doing something. And I like what you're saying about like, carve out an hour of like focused mm -hmm. interaction and teaching. Yeah. And so what is, what, so what is the research behind that? That is, is it just that the brain can only take in so much or what's the um, well, I mean, it's, it's more if you're using school as your baseline, um, you know, this is what your child would be doing if they weren't home with you. And if we wanted to recreate that experience, what would we have to do? And once you subtract out, I mean, taking role and going to recess and lunchtime and um, the the period of time at the end of the day when you're giving out letters and getting ready to go home and uh, the people people's attention drifting off and coming back again and putting things away and getting things out for each ex actual exercise during the day, each activity, that the amount of time that's left is minimal. <laughs> um, so there's that, that aspect of it. Um, and another aspect of it is that a lot of children are stressed right now. Um, they're stressed by their changes in routines. They're stressed by not being able to see their friends. They may be picking up on your stress and being stressed by that as well. And there's a, there's a really good argument for uh, if your child is experiencing a lot of stress at the moment to not even try to teach them anything, as it were. Um, because we, we know that children's brains can't learn. I know nobody's brain can learn when we're stressed. If you were walking in the woods on your walk and, and a bear was to come out of the middle of nowhere, 
and you, you know, you're going into fight or flight mode. What do I do? <laughs> and then I come in and say, Hey, memorize these 10 words. I'm going to come and ask you about them tomorrow. <laughs> our brains just can't do it. And so neither can our children's brains. And so we can actually give them and equip them with a lot more skills that are going to be useful to them when they come back into school. If we focus this time on skills like social and emotional learning, um, understanding uh, how to calm themselves when they feel stressed, now, tools like that can be incredibly useful when they're in the classroom and the kid next to them is poking them and trying to get a rise out of them. So, um, so there, there is a really strong argument for, for using this period in the, the next couple of months until school starts, depending on what that looks like for you, um, to, to just focus on, on those skills and not even worry about academic learning at all. Yeah. Well, and I've been having, we had a, a, a Zoom call with our school district last night. So we've, I've been having a lot of conversations with parents about this right now. And just kind of looking back at last year and how, how the crisis learning, you know, a lot of people feeling like the kids did not learn, yeah. but that they did learn so many other things, you yes. know, like how to, that life is not predictable, resiliency, that, that mom's going to make you go to, for a walk, even if you don't want to, you know, like <laughs> all the things that we did learn and that I learned, I mean, I learned a lot, Yeah, you know? Um, and so I think it's just kind of looking at it from a different angle in some ways. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and also what do we want learning to be like? Um, mm -hmm. if, if parents are looking back to what was the end of the spring semester like and thinking that didn't work for my child, <laughs> maybe it was all the endless zoom calls or, um, they just don't want to do the work when, uh, there's no teacher and students who are in the same room sort of pushing everybody towards that same goal. And you as a parent don't want to be that enforcer. What, what other options do you have? If, if school's opening, maybe you can put your child back in school, but even if it's reopening, if they're on reduced class sizes, they may have to reduce schedules to make enough space for everybody. So your child might not even be in school full time anyway. Uh, what do you do then? And so, yeah, I actually created a course called the confident homeschooler to help parents think, okay, how, if I have to do this, even if I don't want to do this, <laughs> if I'm going to have to do it for some period of time, how can I make it work? Um, with work and with navigating parenting and, and being a teacher, as it were, uh, do I even need to buy a flashcards and curriculum? And if, if I don't, what do I do? And, and it turns out that um, if, if we can move away from that model of learning a little bit and move towards more interest-led learning and following our child's interests, that can be so profound for really inspiring our child's love of learning, which they have when they're young and which actually ends up usually uh, decreasing rapidly in the first couple couple of years of elementary school because they learn that the teacher's questions are the ones that are important and their job is now to provide the answer mm -hmm. rather than to ask the question themselves. Yeah. What, what have you heard from parents in terms of um, concerns and anxieties about homeschooling and feeling confident? I, I was laughing because I was listening to the, your podcast with the mm -hmm. woman who has a PhD in teaching children yes. reading <laughs> and she was scared. That was like so reassuring though, right? Like yes. you have the highest degree available yeah. for this thing and you're also nervous about it. Yeah. So it's just, I mean, it shows how much we care about it and yeah. that it's, it's nerve wracking. Yes. And, and that if you don't have any special education or skills you don't think you have any special education or skills in this, you think, well, how could I possibly be better equipped than a teacher? 
um, once you start to, to figure out a few things, it, it becomes a lot more doable. Firstly, a lot of what teachers learn is related to classroom management and how to keep 30 children all moving towards <laughs> the same goal. And when you're only working with one or a very few children, then you're you sort of naturally um, have a different focus than a teacher does. Um, the second thing is you have an inherent advantage in that you know your child better than anybody else on this planet does. You've already taught them um, just the basic skills of living. You know, if, if you can teach a child how to tie their shoelaces, you can teach a child whatever they need to learn. And, and the key really is to, to get out of this mindset of if my, if I'm not teaching my child, they're not learning something because our children are learning all the time. And our, our job in this is to kind of reimagine our role as being the person who stands at the front with flashcards and <laughs> memorize this word, memorize this word. Um, now spell it for me. And, and instead to, to think of ourselves as people who can connect them with resources and see oh you're interested in aquariums today i wonder if there's an aquarium that has a tour that we could do on on the internet you know what can we learn about here what what, what questions do you have about the fish that you're seeing um and and really use that as a way of digging deep into something that interests them that's so more powerful much more powerful than uh filling out a random worksheet um, you know, I think Laura explained on that interview that her daughter wrote a whole story about an aquarium <laughs> um, that she was supposed to write a line or two for, for school and, and the topic had happened to be something she's interested in. There'll be another child in that class who's interested in Mars and doesn't care about aquariums and, and will have really struggled with that exercise. So when you, when you work one-on-one or one-on-few with your children, you have so many more opportunities to follow their own interests. What advice would you give if, uh, a family, not naming any names, maybe mine, <laughs> maybe. has gotten a, a little overboard on the screen time and on the technology, yeah. just kind of in survival mode and, and wants to recalibrate. Like, how mm-hmm. do you, I know you talk a lot about, um, you know, leading kids so that they don't need, that they listen to you, you know? And I kind of feel like I'm in a position now where we've let them be on screen so much and that really a big part of their education was on the screen, Mm -hmm. how to kind of naturally get them to want to do other things without me constantly forcing, you know, Mm -hmm. forcing that. Yeah. What's your, what's your take on that? I think a lot of it depends on the age of the child in question. Um, Do you want to give me an age range of this hypothetical family's children? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we have eight, 11 and 12. Okay. Well then, yeah, they're, they're definitely old enough to participate in this process. Um, if you, if we're talking more kind of toddlers, then it's more the parent makes the decision and kind mm-hmm. of says how it's going to be, but the older you get. And, and I would say even, even with a, maybe a four-year-old, certainly a five-year-old, six-year-old, you can start involving them in this, in this conversation and you can talk about, um, you know, there was a period of time where you just needed to get work done and you were, feeling as though you uh, needed them to be quiet a lot of the time and that screens were working really well for that. Um, You can say what you've been learning about how screens are not necessarily amazing for children's brain development and you want to make sure that their brains do develop properly. And so um, you can also ask them, well, tell me what it is you like about screens. What's your favorite show? Why do you like that show? Or if it's something else that they'd like to do, what what is it about that that you really like to do? And so um, what we're doing here is using kind of uh, simple language in this conversation is we're uncovering your needs and we're uncovering 
covering your child's needs. So your need is to firstly get some work done <laughs> and secondly to make sure that you're not completely failing your child, <laughs> you're supporting their development. And their need is, you know what, I enjoy, I enjoy spending some time on screens. Mm -hmm. So how can we meet both of those needs? Well, we can, um, figure out if there's a certain show that our child wants to watch. Well, how many of those shows do they want to watch is, is one a reasonable amount or is, do they want to watch two or three? How long is that going to take? Is an hour a reasonable amount of time to spend on screens in a day? Yeah, I, I would say that's not an unreasonable amount of time. Um, so, okay. So can we set a timer for an hour and when the hour is over, what the, the screens will be shut off. Like, what do you think about that? And ask your child about that. Well, what if we're halfway through an episode when that happens? All right. Well, then you could watch to the end of that episode and then we need to turn it off. And so when we, when we have this conversation with our child, where they can see that we're genuinely trying to understand where they're coming from, what they enjoy about it and give them some of that experience that they enjoy while at the same time meeting our need. Um, then we find solutions that we wouldn't necessarily find if it's, if we just focus the conversation tightly on, you know, you must not have certain amount of screen time minutes right. per, more than that per day. Cause honestly, there's no research that, that tells you what is that magic number? Mm -hmm. There just isn't. <laughs> I'm going to go with 15, 15 hours. That'll be fine. <laughs> you might try to cut it down to 14. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I know it's funny because last night, I like what you're saying because I think that um, last night uh, we're kind of in that reality that we might be doing school from home again. Mm -hmm. And um, I just kind of was like trying to give the kids like a, there's a new sheriff in town. Like we're not going to be doing it the same way. And I think what you're saying is like, instead of it's a new sheriff in town, it's like, hey guys, we're going to be going through this again. Let's put yeah. our heads together, together. and yes. have it be more collaborative. Because that's really what I was doing. I mean, I'm laughing at myself, but that's what I was doing. I was kind of like, no more funny business. Like I'm <laughs> cracking down, you know? And it just, I mean, no one's listening to me. Everybody's just kind of right. like, okay, whatever. Um, but I think, yeah, like pulling them together, what worked, what didn't work. Now we have yeah. some some experience. Exactly. In you have some idea of what to go, you know, what some experience to go back on and say, well, I hated that part of it. I liked that part of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like for me, um, it was and you could potentially important. do the same for, for schooling as well. And that maybe one or more of your children actually did quite well with online schooling, um, with the material that the school sends home and having certain exercises and, and wants to keep doing that. And then maybe one or more of your children just finds the zoom calls completely dysregulating and, um, finds it really hard to focus when there aren't uh, other kids around who are doing the same thing. And the teacher saying, okay, you should be here by now. You should be here by now. And you can't be that person because <laughs> you have work to do. Um, then they may find a different approach to learning is better. And you may find that official homeschooling for a period of time works better for them. Um, and homeschooling doesn't have to be a forever decision. You can pull your child out of school for a year and see how it goes and then put them back in again at the end of a year or even sooner than that, if it, if it just doesn't work for your family. So it doesn't have to be this, we're homeschooling for the rest of our child's life <laughs> kind of decision that seems really scary. It can be a, Hey, let's try this and see how it goes. And maybe the other children will decide that they want to do it too. Or maybe the one child it works for is doesn't, doesn't get on well with some aspect of it and wants to go back into school. So yeah, you can really play around with the different aspects of that decision and involve your children in the process of making that decision. Yes. Well, and it's interesting. I've been thankful. I have a friend who has a podcast also, um, Real Women's Work, and she, but she homeschools. And she, it's been helpful for me in my transition to, even though I have not homeschooled, to see what 
other choices people do make and that we have so many more choices than we really acknowledge at times. And, and that, I don't know, I think having that, that exposure to other ways of doing things was helpful for me that yeah we're not crashing and burning here. Like we're just doing it a different way and it's going to be okay. And yeah. Yeah. And I think historically there's been a lot of societal pressure against homeschooling that weird people homeschool, that it's that the normal thing is to put your child in school. We, we don't think about an alternative. It's just, I went to school of course my child's going to go to school. What other alternative is there? Um, whereas now we're in this different situation that, uh, that these, that old way of thinking doesn't apply anymore. Everybody is making this decision for themselves. And so it opens up a whole slew of opportunities. Um, and I would say the one thing to keep in mind, uh, from sort of a social justice perspective is that, um, when you pull your child out of school can have implications for how much funding the school gets, uh, because these, they, the schools, the process is different in different places, but in general, there's some kind of count of children, uh, that happens. And that's the number that the state uses to allocate the amount of funding that the school will get. And so, um, if you are in a position where you can afford to financially support the school in some way, even if you pull your child out, that will continue to make resources av available for other children whose parents are not able to make that decision, um, who, who, uh, who must work full-time outside the home, for example, and, and have to have their child in school um, so that there, there are still resources available for those children that would have been there if your child was there too. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting to me because that's, this is one of the other things that I wanted to talk to you about is the increasing conversations about Black Lives Matter and race and social justice. And I was just talking to someone today about how our school is really prioritizing kids that have um, learning um, limitations or, you know, have, have uh, special education plans, parents who work outside of the home, um, kids that are homeless or don't have resources. And it's, it's interesting to see how that is getting prioritized. And I love it in terms of a social, there's a part of me though, that's like, well, wait, I want my kid to go back to school too. Um, and I guess, I guess what I'm saying is like, I have been thinking in a lot about the social justice issues, but then when it comes, push comes to shove, I'm like, wait, but I want all my stuff also. And it's just an interesting process of like filtering through and realizing like there is sometimes that selfishness of, am I making sense? I don't yeah, know if I'm making yeah. sense. I mean, it, it's every parent wants to give their child the best start, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes when that kind of collides with ideas about what is fair, um, we can end up in sort of strange situations. And, and a, I guess a classic example of that would be, I want to say something like three quarters of white parents when they're surveyed in a national survey will say that uh, attending a school that is diverse is very important to them. But, and that is if all else is equal, but if you have to travel further for that school, then the percentage drops to something really tiny, which is how we end up with schools that have racial populations that are very concentrated because um, when all else is equal, parents want that, but really also what they want is to make sure that their child gets the best possible start in life and chances are they uh, the chances are higher that a white family who has more uh, wealth lives in an area where the school district is better because property taxes then fund the uh, the school district here in the US anyway and so uh, so that's how we end up with these these essentially segregated schools 
So, um, so yeah, we, we do get these very strange impacts when our desire for our, our, our wanting our child to get the best <laughs> out of life um, meets these, these social justice issues. Right. And it was just, I, I guess the reason I even say it out loud is because it's like, it's there, you know, so to not acknowledge <laughs> it is, is not true, you know, yeah. and it, even so anyway, and I think that that's part of at least what I'm working on is being being more aware of when that things like that show up. Mm-hmm. And because if you're not even aware, then you can't. Yeah. And talk with your anything. children about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's a, that's a critical step as well. Um, that, that we shouldn't be just thinking about these things in isolation, but that our children need to understand about what we think about these things mm-hmm. and that there, there is no single right answer. You know, on one hand, we might say, yes, the families of, of children uh, who have special learning needs should be prioritized. And then on the other hand, you might think, well, we know that there are a lot of benefits to children who have these learning needs to be integrated into a mainstream classroom. And so if there are children, uh, you know, if, if the children who are going back to school are all the ones who have special learning needs, then they are being concentrated in school and they're not having this integration experience. So how, how is that going to play out? And so there, there are so many kind of nuanced layers to this and we may not find the single one right answer, right. Uh, but we need to be thinking about it and, and making conscious decisions about it and not just... Um, kind of going with the flow and and uh, letting these things skate <laughs> skate along underneath <laughs> without us really paying attention. Right. There's a lot to pay attention to these days. My brain yeah. is in overload sometimes. One of the things I was reading on your blog was um, about talking to kids about the Black Lives Matter movement. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about that? I was, I, my daughter just made a sign and wants to stand on the corner with a Black Lives Matter sign. Mm-hmm. And I'm all excited about it. And then I also realized like, I need to have more conversation. What does this mean to you? You know, cause I think she saw other people doing it. Let's do it. But tell me a little bit about what your thought process is about teaching kids about this. Yeah. I think a lot of parents are worried that it's too early for their child. Um, and, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say specifically a lot of white parents are worried that however old their child is, their child is too young for this kind of conversation. Um, because we have the desire to, protect our child and preserve their innocence. And so I guess there are, there are sort of two main thrusts that I, I try and think about on, on this argument. The first is that children notice issues related to race before they are a year old. So before a child is a year old, they will be able to pick out uh, people whose faces look similar to the kinds of faces that they see in their lives all the times. And because most children are in families that are a single race, two two parents of the same race, they will um, see people who are of that race more often and they will notice when somebody is of a different race and they will look for longer, which is how researchers understand what babies think they'll look for longer and pay more attention to the person who is of the same race as them than of a different race um and so uh they then start to think about well um what groups do people fit into if if i'm in this group and my parents are in this group other people must be in a different group and so that's sort of the the idea of uh, Jane Elliott's brown eyes, blue eyes experiment, where she she um, said, okay, everybody who has brown eyes is superior today, and you're going to be able to boss the blue eyed children around. Um, and 
and then they, you know, they take it on. They, <laughs> they're absolutely involved in this, in the bossing the blue eyed children around. And the next day she switches it and the blue eyed children are the bosses and they, exactly the same thing happens. And it's the idea that, well, if people in my group are better than the people in the other group. Um, and then this idea is perpetuated through our culture about uh, who, who, who are the protagonists in, in the films and the TV and the books and everything that we read. Well, it's usually the white children and the thin white girls with the wavy hair and <laughs> um, the, the boys who have a certain physique. And so, so these ideas get perpetuated through our children, through, through our culture. And so because our children are getting these ideas from such an early age, we can have conversations with them at such an early age. We can be bringing in literature um, books that have diverse characters, both about topics like uh, the civil rights movement, but also just about children who have all different skin colors, just living their lives so that our children don't get this idea that, well, um, slavery and, and the civil rights movement is it happened to black people and it's bad. And, and, but, but I don't see them uh, in having a, a life other than that, you know, that our right. children need to understand that black people are here and have vital, <laughs> important lives um, and that they go about living their lives just, just like we do. So, um, so I think that there's, there's that sort of uh, what do children understand and when, and, and they're so much more ready for these conversations before we think they are. And then the other aspect of it is the idea of protecting our children and the fact that black parents don't have this luxury of protecting their children. Um, black parents are having conversations with their four-year-olds about not going out into the street with a Nerf gun because the chances of something really, really bad happening to you are not small. Um, and so they need to protect their children, to protect their children's lives. And it is our privilege as white parents to not have to have that conversation if we don't want to, if it's too uncomfortable for us. We can just kind of say, nah, you know what, it, that doesn't really affect us. Uh, my child's going to be safe. It's going to be fine. Uh, I'm just going to, to not feel this discomfort that I feel having this conversation. Um, and so my approach has kind of been, well, if my child's old enough to understand that people can die, She's old, and, she's old enough to understand that, um, that Dr. Martin Luther King was killed. And if she can understand that bullets kill, she's old enough to understand how he was murdered. And so that's the kind of guideline that I use to make these conversations developmentally appropriate, which is the words that are kind of thrown around. Um, if your child is old enough to understand that these things happen, they're old enough for a conversation about uh, how they have happened uh, to real people in real life. Well, it's interesting to me because when I have these conversations with my kids, in my mind, it's very important to me. And I, I think a lot about these things. When it comes out of my mouth, it doesn't <laughs> sound that well thought out. And I, and I think that's some of my hesitation too, is, I, yeah. is it comes out and it sounds really wonky. It just kind of doesn't. And, and, but I guess what I'm really trying to work towards is, okay, do it again and see if, you know, like sort of the growth yeah. mindset, like it's going to yeah. get better over yeah. time. And actually they have great questions. Even when I'm not producing the best, you know, soliloquy about whatever topic, mm -hmm. they have good questions that help guide the conversation too. Um, so it doesn't have to just be me, you know, driving yeah. the ship. 
Yeah. Ideally it shouldn't be you. Ideally it should be driven by your child's questions. Um, that, that's always a, a great place to start these kinds of things. And the, the tricky part that I found is that uh, my daughter is asking less questions about it now because we're not in school. She's not around other kids. We're not listening to NPR on the way home. And so uh, I'm, I'm the one who now has to initiate this because she's not hearing about it from anywhere else. Um, and so that, that can lead me to say something like, well, you know, there's this, there's this thing going on in the world and a lot of people are, are um, protesting about it and I'd really like to talk with you about it. Can, can I tell you about it? And, and so that can be one way of doing it. Another way could be if you're driving through your town and there's a lot of boarded up uh, windows of the shops, you can talk about both the pandemic and, and what that has meant for, particularly for groups of people who, uh, uh, who may not have the resources that, that white businesses do and are able to get access to these loans much more easily than black run businesses are. But also the fact that windows are getting broken and uh, there are people who are protesting and why are they protesting? And well, we normally think about people who are breaking windows as are people who are doing bad things who should be punished. In this case, we're thinking about it in a bit of a different way. Um, these people have experienced a lot of trauma and they're angry and um, they've been telling us these things for a lot of years and we haven't been listening. And now they're using a different way of telling us and we're paying attention. And so um, I think you're absolutely right that this, it's like the sex conversation, right? <laughs> My parents sat me down when I was seven and do you know what happens when women get older? <laughs> And, and they went bright red and they, <laughs> they said, okay, we're going to get you some books. Um, and that was it. And it was done. Whereas we talk about sex all the time in, 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 in just little ways and, you know, saying penis and vulva and using the right terms. And when, when you start doing it, it gets easier. Right. And so, yeah, use your children's questions as a jumping off point and don't feel as though you have to get it perfectly right. It's totally fine to just come back and say, you know what, the thing I told you yesterday, I was thinking about it some more and it didn't quite come out the way I hoped. Yeah. <laughs> Can we talk about it again? Right. <laughs> it's well, totally fine to say that. Well, it's funny because that was a, one of the, I remember when I was learning about doing therapy with people, that that's actually something that people really value yeah. when you come back and say, I've been thinking about you and the conversation we had, like yeah. you're that important that the thing that we were talking about stayed with me and yeah. I wanted to talk about it again. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I like that idea. <laughs> Just keep trying. Um, so one of the things that I know you were talking about was, um, this is shifting a little bit, but about um, not being as reward focused in, is this a whole nother ball of, but it almost seems like it all ties in just this respect yeah. of the individual and it the does. conversations. Is that really sort of the overarching umbrella of what your work is yeah, about? Yeah, it really is. Um, and I'm actually in the process of developing <laughs> this big new course uh, to help parents uh, to see that um, a lot of the ways we parent are based on our traumas that we experienced as children. And, and where did that come from? Well, it came from the fact that our parents are traumatized. You know, we learned how to parent from people who were traumatized, <laughs> essentially, through, through the generations. Um, and so we have to really be focused on reparenting ourselves and understanding, well, what, what is my vision of, of being a child and how I interact with that person? And so how should I interact with them if I have this vision of a, you know, not not where we're equal and their, their vote has equal weight to mine because I'm a parent and I have more experience in the world, but that I have respect for my daughter's opinion and I'm going to consider it. And rewards really make that tricky because they, um, they kind of codify, they, uh, they, 
entrench the idea that I have power over her. Because if we're if we're rewarding somebody, we're saying, um, firstly, I I'm I love you more when you do this thing that's important to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and secondly, um, it, it, I'm going to be happier when you do it, and therefore I'm going to give you this thing that says you, to to make you do it again. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to use the reward to shape our child's behavior rather than understand. Uh, what was going on with the situation in the beginning. So since you asked me that question, I'm wondering if there's a certain circumstance that you're thinking about with a hypothetical family (laughs) that might've been using rewards. I was just thinking about, well, one of my kids is um, doing this outdoor um, exercise thing and he really, Mm -hmm. it's hot. He doesn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. And we're, yeah, we've been kind of like, well, if you don't do it, you're not going to get this thing that, you know, we talked about Mm -hmm. and it's worked, but it doesn't feel good to like be, you know, coercing him. So I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's my situation. (laughs) It took me a while to think of one. I know. Right. (laughs) Yeah. There definitely wasn't one floating just beneath the surface there. Um, Yeah. So, so in that case, I would think about, well, why are you trying to offer him, offer him a reward? You want him to be healthy, right? Is, is that kind of at the heart of it? You want him to see the value of exercise and Mm -hmm. get into the habit of doing it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so whenever I I hear this, I think back to the research on getting children to eat their vegetables, because it seems to apply in so many of these situations. We sort of feel as though um, if we can just get our child into the habit of eating vegetables, that they will like vegetables and, um, and they'll eat more of them. And to some extent that's true, but if you do it through coercing, um, through making dessert at the other end of the meal, the reward, <laughs> um, then the, what the vegetables come, what's called a gateway food. And so the get the, the vegetables are the gateway to getting the reward at the end. And what happens when you make vegetables a gateway food is that the child comes to like the reward even more and to dislike the gateway food <laughs> even more. And the only predictor of the amount of children vegetables eat is the extent to which they like vegetables. So we're making them like vegetables less, which means they're going to eat less vegetables. So you may be able to get a few spoons of vegetables into them in the short term and you feel like you've won that battle, but you're kind of losing the war, you know, and Mm -hmm. military analogies, I think is appropriate in this because (laughs) because you are kind of, you're, you're at odds with your child. Um, You're trying to change their behavior. And so when we apply that to your situation with your son, um, you're trying to uh, change his behavior to get him to value something um, and to reward him for doing that. And what you're probably doing is uh, making it so he dislikes the exercise even more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and then I, I can't say for sure that the, the less you like exercise, the less you do it. Cause I haven't looked at the peer reviewed research on it, but intuitively <laughs> one can imagine that right. if you don't like exercise, you're probably not going to do it. Right. So, um, so in this case, we, we understand your needs. You want him to, to enjoy exercise, to value it, to see it as part of a healthy lifestyle, but we haven't looked at his needs. We don't understand what his needs are. If it's hot outside, I, I, I don't like exercising when it's hot. <laughs> what else is going on there? What other aspects of it does he not enjoy? What aspects of it does he enjoy? How can we get more of the things he does enjoy and fewer of the things he doesn't? You know, maybe it's just a question of shifting it to early morning or late evening um, when it's not so hot outside. Maybe that would work and he would find if he enjoys the program itself, then that would work. Maybe he could do it in the basement mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> where, where you, if you have air conditioning. Um, maybe he just doesn't like this particular program, but there's some other 
another kind of exercise that he would really enjoy. And so when we understand what his needs are, then we can come up with a solution that works for everybody. Because right now, the only thing we understand is your needs. And we're mm -hmm. trying to use those to coerce him. So, um, so that's really the path forward is that conversation with him, you know, right. wh what are your needs and how can we work together to meet both of those? And yeah, it's, it's a core underpinning of, of parenting in a way that's grounded in respect. I love that. Yeah. I, it's funny. Cause when you say it, when I say it out loud, it's like, oh, it sounds, but it's just, mm -hmm. I think sometimes the, the, you just get caught in cycles. Of, it's habit. Of, yeah. yeah. I mean, habit. It's, it's the way we were raised. Mm -hmm. It's the way we've done everything until now. It kind of worked. Okay. It mm -hmm. got our child to do what we wanted them to do, which isn't the goal of, you know, isn't that the goal of parenting after right. all to get our child to do what we want them to do. Um, and so if, if we are stepping back from that and saying, whoa, maybe that isn't the goal of parenting. <laughs> how, how do I shift my interactions with my child? Um, if I don't believe that, uh, getting my child to comply with my wishes is the best thing to do. You know, mm -hmm. ideally when, when they leave our house, we want them to be able to think critically, right. Think for themselves, um, live their own life in a way that feels valuable to them. And if they don't know how to do that, because the only thing they know how to do is comply with our wishes, then we've kind of gotten ourselves into a sticky situation and we can't say, well, turn on critical thinking the minute you leave our house, but I don't want to hear it. Right. <laughs> yeah. We have to be kind of supporting and encouraging this. And yeah, it's harder to, to not say you don't get the reward if you don't do the exercise, but to, to understand what is our child's needs. But if we're in the business of raising somebody with these critical thinking skills, with these abilities to live fulfilled lives, then it's kind of the work that needs to be done. Yeah. In my opinion. Yes. I like that. And I, lo I love what you said about the reparenting ourselves. Cause I think that's where it all begins, right? It's if we don't know yeah. what's coming out of us, then yeah. we can't change it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, feeling triggered by, by your child's behavior. Uh, mm -hmm. Why, why do we feel triggered by our child's behavior? Well, you know, big, big <laughs> light bulb moment. It's not our child's behavior. Mm. It's us. It's, yeah. it's things that we experienced when we were children. You, you're not feeling triggered when one, one of your children is hitting their sibling because of their relationship. You're feeling triggered because of something that happened to you. And maybe you were hit by your sibling. Maybe you were the hitter and you got punished for it. I, I don't know what this exact situation is, but there was something that is uh, related to a trauma that you experienced that is making this, that something that mm -hmm. blows out of all proportion in your head. Right. And until we understand those things and, and yeah, reparent ourselves. It's, it's going to be super hard to move towards um, the direction that we want to go. Well, and in many homes you have two parents, so you have two different types of yes. trauma that you're, yes. you're interacting, playing. feeding off each other sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a process. It um, well, I love what you're doing and I love your podcast. I'm excited. I've found it. And I'm wondering if you can tell people where they can learn more about you and your courses and everything that you're working on. Yeah, everything, uh, you can find everything that I do at yourparentingmojo.com. Um, and so yeah, my socials are there, Instagram and Facebook, and um, I post pretty actively. I'm actually posting uh, right now every day uh, um, the Instagram and Facebook feeds of a, a parenting coach who is a person of a non-dominant culture. Uh, so somebody who's, uh, who's not white basically so that you can diversify your social media feed and, and start to see information about parenting from a whole bunch of different places that maybe you hadn't considered before. And that's a real eye opener. Having, having gone through that myself, <laughs> it's an incredible eye opener. So if you follow me on social media, you'll start to see those things coming through as well. Um, and yeah, all the information on the courses that I uh, am already, 
already running and memberships related to supporting you with parenting and also um, supporting interest-led learning as well. I have a whole membership dedicated to that. Um, so everything's available at yourparentingmojo.com along with the podcast and blog post and, and all the free stuff too. Cool. Yeah, I bet a lot of parents who are looking at being at home with school would love to learn more about the interest led mm -hmm. instead of, instead of leading from what my interest is leading from what right, the child's yeah. interested. So it's not yeah. my, my interest now. Okay. That's what I keep <laughs> like, who wants to lay in bed and read with me? Cause that's what I like to do. And they're like, no, we <laughs> want to do these other things. I'm like, okay, well, okay. Um, so my last question for you is I'm just curious during this time of COVID-19 and changing of activities and routines. Is there anything that's been sort of like a touchstone practice for you that's really helped keep you feeling balanced and mm. your go-to? Yeah, I think maybe there are two things. Um, so the first is I, I used to go grocery shopping once a week and um, the grocery store where I go has been having super long lines and and so if, if you're going to do that, you're, you're kind of invested in it. So I've started going grocery shopping once every two weeks and making a rule that every meal I cook has to make two dinners and a lunch. <laughs> and so the amount of time I'm spending cooking is decreasing, which is creating more time and space for other things. So, um, so that has been one kind of super practical thing. And then the other thing I'm doing is I am working a lot of hours right now on creating resources for parents. And um, I have a five-year-old and I'm fortunate in, in some ways that my husband is out of work at the moment <laughs> and, uh, and is able to um, sort of take on a, lo a lot of those activities. But I spend an hour a day with my daughter, um, pretty much non-negotiably, uh, focused on whatever activity she wants wants to do. So it's not me saying, you know, we're going to learn this right now. It's her saying, okay, we're going to look for roly polies in the garden. We're going to play Monopoly. We're going to do whatever it is she wants to do. And I actually try and use that as a, a, a mindfulness practice because it, I mean, do I really want to spend an hour looking for roly polies in the garden? <laughs> um, or I could think about it as what is she interested in? What, what is she getting out of this? How does she approach this problem of where, where do you find roly polies? How do you get them to come? Can we mm -hmm. water the ground and what ideas does she have? Um, and just, just use it as a, I am here. I'm present in this moment with this person in this relationship for one hour and the phone's away. And, and the, all we're doing is focusing on her and on our relationship. And I found that that is a, a super helpful thing, both for her because she feels connected to me. So we can spend time in the day apart from each other. And also for me um, to, to get a regular kind of built into the day uh, practice of mindfulness, because otherwise it's really easy for that to kind of slip past mm -hmm. and, and not happen. So I love that idea. I love the idea of even when it's not something that would be at the top of your list, because that's something mm -hmm. I struggle with, which just like, okay, when is this game going to be over. Right. You know, yeah. Pretend of, play. A lot of parents struggle with that. Right. What is it? Ten play? Pretend play. Oh, pretend play. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no. Thankfully we're, yeah, my daughter, I, I basically have convinced her I'm not good at it, which is kind of sad, but like, remember I'm really bad that's at okay. that. That's oh. okay. You, you don't have to do every kind of play with every child. Um, I did a whole episode on pretend play. <laughs> but I like the idea of just being present and observing. Yeah. Well, why is it that he wants to change the rules in the middle of the game? Yes. What's that about? And what can yes. we talk about as a result of that? You know, yeah. like, oh, if you want to do it that way, maybe you say that at the beginning of the game or, yeah. you know, just how- Is how... it fair? What is fairness? Does it matter mm. if it's fair? 
Um, yeah, those are all kinds of conversations that can come out of it, uh, yeah. out of a simple decision like that. Yeah, we, we, we have the same thing happen. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I feel like we covered a lot of territory. And yeah, I love we kind of did get to a lot of We uh, did. <laughs> Hopefully we brought some sort of string through them all. But yeah. um, well, thank you so much for sharing your time and your resources. And I'm excited to share share you with my listeners. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. Thanks, Jen. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And thanks again to Otherworld Computing for sponsoring the show. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend. And I would love it if you would leave a rating or review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show and spread the message. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.